and welcome to the Al Husaic Ehlan Musahlan podcast. I'm here with our development and advocacy coordinator, Abby North. This is our 13th version of this call, and I'm so excited to chat with you today, Abby. Abby has written Israel 101, recommended Rami, Lebanese band Mashrua Leila, Side by Side, and Paradise Now, and has also published the Yemen Conflict, Advocacy in Yemen, and the Advocacy Terminology Guide. Incredible, incredible work already. Thank you so much, Abby, and welcome. Let's sort of just jump right in with all of this incredible stuff you've published already. Um, tell us how you found out about Al-Fuzaic and, you know, your passions when it comes to the Middle East, North Africa region. Definitely. So I came across Al-Fuzaic uh, when I was just about finishing with my master's degree in anthropology and international development in London. So the focus of that degree, as well as my undergraduate degree, was on humanitarianism and development in the uh, Mina Swana region specifically. So the opportunity to uh, write for Al Fusaic started off really as just an opportunity to make sure that when I graduated, I could continue uh, engaging in those topics. And then, you know, with each recommendation, that sort of developed into uh, an effort to write primarily on advocacy. I think primarily as an opportunity to in my opinion, sort of counter uh, the representations of the region in, in the news and education, which are primarily focused on conflict. So uh, how can we sort of nuance that conversation a bit by highlighting the important activism and resistant work that goes on, whether that's through music, like some of the bands you mentioned, literature or actual, uh, you know, political movements uh, is really what I'm most interested in with El Fusaic. And it's so incredible to see all of the work that you've produced. Um, you know, you're, you're even back from your very first project, there was a very important aspect of advocacy embedded. Um, we talked a lot with, with Clara, who is our social media coordinator and wrote Palestine 101. Um, but I guess for our listeners today, we onboarded Clara and Abby at the same time to both um, write about Israel and Palestine simultaneously. Uh, would you want to talk, talk a little bit about how that process went from your very first project in that collaborative space? Yeah, definitely. And I think it was a really great uh, starting off point for me because although I've been uh, educated in both Israel and Palestine, just due to the nature of my work, I had generally... Uh, been engaging more in the Palestinian perspective. And so the opportunity to, you know, illustrate the the 101s, the history, the religion, etc. of Israel, uh, not, you know, not without maintaining the important lens of the occupation was a really good challenge for me and the opportunity to work with Clara and figure out how we could put this information uh, literally side by side uh, as to highlight, you know, the important reality of both um, narratives, but also, you know, without even having to try to do this, you can indicate the ambigu ambiguities between the two just by putting them next to each other was really interesting. And it was really fun to work with her on that. Well, and you two have continued to work together, which is which is so lovely. Um, <laughs> that was a wonderful, I guess, uh, side effect of, of two really solid 101s. Yeah, um, as our listeners will remember when chatting with Clara, we, we dived really deep into um, this whole process of, of, of writing it together, working with each other, the language that you both would use and whatnot. Um, and that's turned to, you know, Claire with the social media and you as our development and advocacy coordinator. 
so concretely. So just again, thank you for the incredible start to your Alphusaic journey. Um, and it's been really wonderful to see it progress. Um, if you want to chat a little bit more about this, happy to, but I, I'm just most fascinated by your advocacy work. So <laughs> I'm happy to change yeah, careers you are. Let's do it. Excellent. Um, so yes, yeah, so you are, you know, our advocacy coordinator as well, focusing on, um, again, the best language to use. I think that's a similarity, but also the uh, important uh, demonstrations and reactions and community tolerance and engagement and, and all of those things that really make up the region today. Well, what drew you to to that passion when it comes to the Middle East, North Africa area? Yeah, I think I really would probably call upon my anthropological background because the emphasis is really on um, often less uh, voices given less space or silenced voices, whatever that arena looks like. Um, so actually, to, to jump back with Clara, not unlike sort of some of the work she's published on Edward Said or Antilism, that same stream of thought, uh, whether you want to call that like decolonial thinking, et cetera. And so um, I've just always been interested in ways to look at information, maybe from uh, just just multiple perspectives, uh, especially ones that I, you know, I'm not expected to, to necessarily take up. And so specifically for advocacy work, I do think a lot of this um, interest for Alphazaic specifically, I could speak to the, you know, rise of the prominence of the Black Lives Matter movements this past summer and, and giving resources to especially, you know, predominantly white people interested in involving themselves in the issues, actual tangible resources. So whether those are uh, me doing the background research on organizations we can donate to where we know the money is being funneled um, in an ethical way, or whether that's non-financial resources for educating ourselves, for um, you know watching a YouTube uh, video, and that'll automatically donate money. I think those actual tangible resources are almost more important than the background information, because we're sort of flooded all the time with uh, humanitarian disasters in the region. My project on Yemen specifically, Yemen's labeled the worst humanitarian crisis in the world, but we're never asked to think, one, more critically about how that came to be, and two, you know, what can we do about it besides share these sometimes very traumatic photos over and over again. So that, um, I think, drive to educate myself and others and to find actual tangible resources which are importantly, you know, always behind the backs of people in that region who are doing that work um, is really important to me. I, I really appreciate that perspective. And I, I've recognized even in myself that I have said MENA, Middle East, North Africa, several times just in this podcast call. And, and one of the important aspects is, is maybe we should shift to SWANA, Southwest Asia and North Africa, which I know we'll get into with your terminology guide that you have created um, but but even you know specifically focusing on Yemen, which was your third project and, and definitely a huge passion of yours. Uh, what I loved about you know both of the two Yemen pieces you did, the first one being sort of more of a history and, and timeline and awareness of the conflict, conflicts really plural, um, and then the advocacy series of, of what Yemeni communities and, and modern Yemen activists are doing in reaction to everything going on there. But you didn't just showcase the movements, you also showcased organizations, places to donate, a really holistic look at advocacy. And, and that's what I really appreciated with, with that project. Also, it was a really fascinating insight of, you know, Yemen is only really the traumatic images that most people think of today. And yet there are so many more layers to to the situation there that I, again, have super appreciated your 
intentionality in putting that uh, piece or pieces, excuse me, together. Um, but yeah, I, I'm curious if, if there is more of a focus, emphasis, you know, what, what have you on the organization, the places to donate, the, the, the direct tangible steps I can take as someone not connected to Yemen in any direct way. If that kind of research is something that, that is harder to do, easier to do, you know, your, your relationship to it is something I'm very curious. And I think our listeners would be too. Yeah, it's definitely a very um, interesting process because even these, you know, quite renowned organizations like the UNHCR or the Red Cross, International Red Cross, if you look carefully at how that money is filtered into particularly um, corrupt governments, and I'll say corrupt because of you know, a, a history of colonialism, et cetera, which we don't have to get into now, um, that money, even though that organization is quite, uh, has quite a, a positive reputation for the most part, um, is not, I would say in general, the first place most people would, should start if they want to be sure that that money is going to, you know, communities in need. And that is really, I think, predominantly, because if we look at the people running these organizations, they're so widespread that, you know, that it loses the opportunity just by necessity of, of having that um, specificity and closeness to the communities they're working with. So if we instead look to community leaders, um, you know, who have, been uh, actively engaged in that work, even when it's not an emergency, even when it's not attractive on the news or social media, those people know so well how to distribute those supplies. Um, and in my opinion, that's the first place we should start. And then often those people know, uh, yes, the International Red Cross is a good organization in this in this situation to donate. Um, if we look to the aftermath of the Beirut explosion specifically, there was a lot of controversy about you know, French governmental aid, uh, even some of the big humanitarian organization aid, um, because these individuals who had been in those communities for so long could immediately could see that that money wasn't actually going to them. So, I mean, this is why sites like GoFundMe, um, Venmo, even PayPal, Instagram have been so important because we can finally highlight those voices who who more uh, authentically and effectively can can use those resources. And that's just so timely too. It's not just, you know, what is the conflict and how are people reacting to it, but you know, the the Beirut bombing is is such a or I guess explosion is a much better example. That happened, you know, very very recently and yet there is questions about uh what to do now and where to go now and which communities to help. And so to, to have that consistent emphasis is, is really great, but you know, to, to be maybe a little bit more blunt, isn't it a little exhausting or tiring to think of all of these perspectives at once? I mean, I think it's definitely, I wouldn't even say tiring. I would say it's, it's just like disappointing. You know, you go to, it, it's surprisingly not difficult to sort of do a few clicks on one of these organizations' websites or through, uh, you know, a governmental announcement of how aid is being used to see right through it. I don't think you have to have a background in humanitarianism or development to detect that the language is either very vague or, you know, purposefully not political. Something I focus on in both of my degrees is how humanitarianism tries really hard to not be political. And that is 
uh, it severely negatively impacts the communities it's they're helping because these issues are always political. So we see these community organizations in Yemen, for instance, who are actively political. Um, and just because they're political, that doesn't mean they cannot be humanitarian, etc. And although that becomes a bit convoluted, um, it doesn't feel tiring to me. I think it's it's kind of exciting. And I would much rather be doing that labor to try to elevate some of those voices than, you know, the people on the ground who are already doing the physical labor to distribute should not have to be the ones to also find those Western audiences to donate. So, um, I mean, I'm doing a very small piece of that puzzle, but it's something I really appreciate doing. And what an important piece. I, I think it's, it's such a, a, a crucial aspect in this full advocacy space uh, and I'm just so appreciative of you taking this mantle up. So again, thank you for for the for the work that you're doing. Uh, when I said tiring, I was mainly just curious of the you know consistent and constant searching and updating and tracking and, and all of those aspects. And yet, that's also a very crucial part for accountability purposes. Um, so yeah, I just I really really uh, love to hear that it's a passion of yours, and you have been able to utilize Alphusaic in that way. Again, your Yemen article your, you know, upcoming advocacy series and interviews and this terminology guide are, are wonderful, wonderful resources out there, um, you know, to connect a global audience to be aware of, of the realities of the ground. I think that sentence sort of expanded is, is why Alphuzaic was created in the first place to showcase the MENA or like, SWANA, excuse me, the SWANA region uh, at large and, and learning all of the nuances and, and beauties and aspects and diversity of the cultures and history and food and all of the great, great points. Um, and this advocacy aspect is the very modern aspect of all of those same things. So it, it goes hand in hand here. Um, I'm curious, as you have mentioned, the the political dynamic of, of humanitarianism and advocacy um, and how, how difficult it may be to, to traverse that line. I know necessarily you're not on the ground in these areas, but in your research and, and connection and learning and tracking, um, how have uh, some community leaders dealt with that issue? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the, the first thing that came to mind when you brought that up, um, I've done a bit of research uh, and visited, I, you know, not to any extreme extent, but uh, Palestinians in East Jerusalem who fall under this very unique jurisdiction where they're technically... Uh, under both uh, Palestinian, uh, Israeli authority, as well as the authority of UNRWA, the Palestinian UN aid organization. Um, and so we see a space like that and you think, okay, there's a Palestinian refugee camp that's not political. Let me pay, you know, I'll donate $5 a month. It'll be funneled to the Palestinians there. Uh, and just because of the nature of humanitarian aid, we don't expect that to be a very convoluted process. But in fact, what happens is these individuals are in some ways existing in this space where they have to navigate positive and negatives of resources or restrictions from Israel, as well as from the Palestinian Authority, um, through this humanitarian aid organization that's, uh, you know, labeled as a semi-terrorist organization by one, as, you know, a necessary organization by the other, and then completely defunded by the Trump administration, etc. So this $5 a month you want to donate, you know, let's say to a water infrastructure project becomes much more complicated when, um, you know, that water becomes cut off by one or both authorities. But the importance of this, I think, and something I learned through my research and visiting, is that 
we can't discuss. So if the, let's say this was to be portrayed in uh, CNN, we would see the Palestinian refugees in this camp portrayed as sort of victims of all of these different actors um, as as a call to funding, perhaps. But really, they've they're they've you know, they become incredibly political, whether that is uh, de- like rerouting their water system so that they never actually lose water, whether that's, you know, minor resistance, like I said, against both authorities. When UNRWA was defunded, that was like propping up some of their own smaller education initiatives. And so the importance to me is to, you know, include the information about the oppression from various uh, sides, which is so crucial, but to never lose sight of how those individuals, you know, maintain their agency and political uh, abilities through and through. And so if I was to write on this for El Hoseic, it's, you know, centering um, those voices as political, uh, despite the fact that there's this humanitarian umbrella over the whole issue. Wow, there's so much to unpack in that. Um, (laughs) I have so many questions we can take this. Um, let's start with um, the word terrorism, because I think that's a very difficult word and many, many, many reasons, and, and we're not going to get to all of them here, but specifically in the advocacy space for calling one organization doing humanitarian work, which may not be viewed as humanitarian in a certain way. I'm just curious, we don't need to get into this super deep, it just it just kind of struck with me as you said that, um, if you have any you know thoughts or reactions or, or direct engagement of the labeling or, or, or usage of that of that word when it comes to advocacy work. Definitely. And I think this is also a good segue into the terminology resource guide that me and Talila put together because language becomes so important in these spaces. Um, I think labels always hold a degree of importance, but when it comes to advocacy and humanitarianism, a label either puts off or uh, you know, invites funding, which is so crucial. So especially with a conflict like Israel-Palestine and the role, say, of the United States, um, how Israel or how Palestine authorities decide to, uh, I, you know, identify what UNRWA's work is in the region or other, um, you know, work work by other outsiders is crucial because that will reflect on how big state governments decide they want to facilitate their funding and not just on big states. But, you know, if you are an American who has heard that the Palestinian cause is important, but is not quite sure how to incorporate your money and you and you hear an organization being called a terrorist organization, it's it's off-putting, complete, which is completely understandable. Um, and we, we won't go into this now, but, you know, organizations like Hamas, etc. There's so many layers to unpack there. And we're so often given not just um, not just the same information over again about these organizations, but just basically empty organization where we're not really able to make up our own minds about uh, our opinions on that matter. And so the more that we can broadcast voices of people there to explain whether that's an Israeli living next to the East Jerusalem camp who can speak to violence they've encountered, whether that's a Palestinian in the camp who can speak to uh, the oppression that they've encountered, all of those voices matter so much more than the, than the leaders of either authority group, because at the end of the day, you know, they're not the ones in that, in that intense space. Um, So I think those labels are important, 
to the extent that we are also trying to see how the people on the ground are experiencing the labels because it's always going to be very multidimensional. Incredible response. I think that that so succinctly showcases that controlling the narrative is is just as crucial as focusing on the issue at hand. Um, I, I had another question from your, your comment before, um, and then I want to jump into this terminology resource guide because I think it is such a, a valuable literally resource for, for those to, to understand the language that is being used and those that are intentional about their language, both in a positive and a negative sense, what that may mean for the different dimensions of the region and the conflicts there are. But I wanted to jump back, um, and, and you said this multiple times in most of your answers, on financial ways to help out with advocacy, places to donate accurately, tracking the financial streams, you know, donating resources or or, or whatnot, physical and, and monetary. I'm, I'm curious you know, two parts. One, why is financial advocacy so crucial? I think I know the answer, but I want to hear your response. And is there non-financial ways to to be both to be best engaged when it comes to advocacy work? Definitely, I think financial uh, advocacy and just financial, um, you know, outside of these so so-called crises that receive an emergency label, just financial aid in development has gone through this interesting history where where sort of funneling money was initially all we did. Then it became infrastructural projects and just giving money to poor people sent, you know, alert signals to, to Westerners who didn't think that they would be using that money appropriately. And then it's, you know, it's come under a number of different kind of convoluted lenses, power dynamics. But at the end of the day, if you care about the community, um, involved in this situation and you have the means to do so financial you know advocacy is always is usually i should say going to be the most effective because particularly for groups who have been silenced and whose ability to um you know sort of prioritize their case is not really an option in the public arena global arena then providing them at least financial means to to make do is going to be from what I have understood and from what I've understood from working with a few different groups um, and studying is the most effective. But at the end of the day, and I think this is something that we all encountered this past summer, at least in the U.S., um, you know, we, you, at the end, you can't donate to every single cause you want to donate to as compelling as they are. And social media provides, you know, despite all of its negativities, a really important opportunity to use your own platform for free to highlight the important work of other people. Uh, so sharing, you know, liking, posting, etc. Um, highlighting those community activists, uh, global activists, whether that's just to get one of your friends to think in a different way, or whether that's to encourage someone else to donate is, is just really invaluable. So I think, um, I mean, I personally, for my Alphusaic articles have gotten most of my non-financial resource um, ideas just from social media and uh, and following those individuals and and those people will always uh, you know keep their audience updated on on ways to contribute. So all of those are are really important. I think that's a really helpful response. I think because amplifying the voices of of those on the ground or those directly engaged to the solution uh, of the conflicts, you know, whether they be humanitarian, emergency, or just a skirmish, um, is really, really crucial. And so I, I appreciate hearing the 
many ways to engage. You know, we, we don't want to turn someone away who doesn't have the financial means to contribute, although they may be very excited to learn about or be an advocate for XYZ conflict. Um, so that, that's really, really helpful to hear that there's a huge breadth. And I, I will say your Yemen advocacy article has many of those options in there of follow this person on social media, see see the work that they're doing in their own Yemen community, learn from them and amplify that way. So I love that there, that trickles to most conflicts, not just Yemen. Um, so thank you for sharing. I, I want to jump into the terminology resource guide now. I think we've, we've talked about its wonderfulness and existence and the importance of language and, and whatnot. Um, I, I want to highlight the the three terms that you chose, uh, you know, why that's the direction that you're going. I know that it's going to be a much larger glossary first, but you wanted to get the first three out there. Um, and what's super lovely is you were able to collaborate with one of our partner organizations, Amazing Amazig. Um, and Amazig happens to be one of the three terms, hence that partnership. Um, but I want to talk, before we define the three terms that you have so far, um, just sort of the the need for creating a interactive and ever-growing dictionary resource terminology guide and, and your desire to make that happen. Definitely. So uh, ultimately, not to, I, I won't nerd out too much about this. I'll save you. Oh, no, please uh, do. <laughs> but please do. <laughs> what's actually really interesting is uh, there's a movement in particularly academia um, decolonizing our curriculums, and that starts with uh, decolonizing our language, meaning looking more critically at labels of groups of people and of geographic locations and saying, huh, I wonder, I wonder where that term came from. I wonder what um, power dynamics it carries with it. And I wonder if the group it's referencing take ownership of that term or not. And what's interesting, and, and again, related to Clara's work, is a lot of this work is sprouted from Palestine. A lot of important decolonial and anti-colonial work comes from Latin America and from Palestine, from Edward Said and, and uh, people that have come uh, since him. And so sort of taking, taking off from there, um, I just wanted in this space and I, and you and Megan were so great about reminding me with all my articles, like put a glossary, put a glossary, because things that, we've been setting for so long, these words sort of just, you know, bounce off of us, stay in our heads. But when you're new to learning about uh, a new region and me, me as well, like I didn't know as as much about Yemen before, a lot of these identities and labels uh, are so crucial because as well-intended as you are, if you, if you aren't able, let's say you want to donate to, uh, Palestinian refugees, but you don't quite know how to define Palestinian sovereignty, or you don't know what that means tangibly. In my opinion, that advocacy is going to be pretty limited because you are using the terminology, um, you're using the frameworks of, uh, it sounds intense, but of, you know, of oppression, of oppressive infrastructure with which to do that. Um, Same with Yemen, let's say, you know, trying to funnel aid by continuing to come back to it as the world's worst humanitarian crisis without exploring how the U.S., France, and U.K.'s um, sales to Saudi Arabia of arms is, you know, creating and perpetuating that conflict, your advocacy is going to be very limited because you're only looking at the service level. Something I've explored is like the tip of the iceberg um, without all of this important language and critical languages below. So these three terms in this resource guide are really just the beginning of what I hope can be um, an opportunity to educate myself and, and 
you know, our audience on some of those important identities uh, of groups and regions so that we can be the most supportive that we can while learning uh, from scratch. That's just such an important point that I, I really want to reemphasize is that there are certain terms that are not accurate, not kind, and just not good, <laughs> I guess, to be simple. Uh, when it comes to labeling things globally, and, and we'll jump into the three that you chose and, and what the prevailing word is that it sh should not be used anymore. Um, but, but even taking a step to the side, like the Yemen example, you know, that's not necessarily a, a quote unquote bad label. Well, I mean, it's a bad label. It's the world's worst. But in the sense that it's, it's there's more to unpack on, on how it got to that point and what it means to be that and the best ways to react to it instead of seeing you know, the arms trade or or uh, maritime trade as well with all the ports, you know, all of those many, many, many other layers to it. That's really crucial. Um, so thank you for, for being so succinct and clear on um, the importance of, of changing our language, which is difficult and hard to do. And, and I catch myself saying Mina all the time, um, which I guess is a good segue to our first word, um, that SWANA is, is a better acronym for the geographic region of Morocco to Iran, or Northern Africa and Southwest Asia. Um, that is the very first term of your terminology guide. You know, we at Alphuseic have, have wrestled with, do we call things SWANA only, when that's not the most well-known term? Do we call things MENA, because that is the, the more globally understood term for this geographic region? Do we say both? And we sort of settled with both, and that where we have MENA, we usually have slash SWANA next to it, um, sort of explaining that. Um, so yeah, so, so SWANA is, is a really important term because as far as I remember from your terminology guide, and please interrupt me if I'm missing anything, you know, calling something the Middle East has a lot of uh, Eurocentricity in the word middle. Um, you know, it's Eastern from Europe and, and Northern and Southern America. So yeah, maybe Eastern, but middle versus Far East versus all of those things, those sort of qualifying words like middle, like far, are, are not a global perspective, but a European one, which is sort of where that colonial language comes from. Whereas Southwest Asia is more accurate in the sense that it is literally the southwestern corner of the Asian continent. Is, is that largely correct from the research you've done and the terminology guide you created? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say one, one quick caveat just to sort of not, def I mean, to, to defend you and Megan in a way, but what's so important about these words that I want to make really clear is that they're not, uh, they're very contested still. So I think it's very appropriate to put two of these words back to back because we'll talk about this later, but a word like Afro-Arab, that's not an identity that at all that Al-Fusaic is trying to say everyone in, you know, that has both of those backgrounds identifies with. Same with Swana and Nina. Um, these are continuously evolving words. I think the important, especially, importance, especially as a Westerner, is just recognizing exactly like you said, that Mina holds very colonial Eurocentric uh, ties. And so just by putting the two together, and depending on the context, like you might be working with someone from the region who is happy to use the word Mina, and then you would take their lead. But you're using both as an opportunity to say, hey, I'm knowledgeable about this. You tell me what you are choosing to do in this context. It's just never going to be our decision if you're not someone who can take ownership of that term. But I think what you said about SWANA is, um, is perfectly correct. The only thing I would add 
and what is so great about the term, which I learned from this organization called the SWANA Alliance, is that it's not just geographical, but they're very focused on specific communities who uh, are struggling to to fully liberate themselves and to gain full sovereignty. So whether that's the Kurds, the Armenians, uh, the Druze, so groups with very contested backgrounds, the the term is supposed to encapsulate all of those liberation struggles, not just in a geographical sense, but in a political sense. So it's a very powerful, um, a very powerful term. Oh, I didn't realize that additional component. That's lovely to hear. Um, thank you for sharing that additionally. Um, yeah, Megan and I, you know, we're both not Arabs or not from Swana or not from a ethnic group in that region. Um, and yet we have, you know, a, a triple connection with our education, our careers, and just our personal passions from our shared experiences there. Um, not, you know, that was the intentionality behind al in the first place. I mean, al is a combo word of Arabic and English together. Um, so where we can showcase more advocacy of uh, an effective language is something we we choose to do. Um, you know, we are a MENA-centered organization, but on some of our Country 101 profiles, for example, we have MENA and SWANA next to each other. So that was trying to find the best ways to utilize this language and, and be cognizant of those who may not know the term or may only know the term and, and everything in between is something something crucial. The second term is the one I'm most familiar with of the three of your terminology guide, which is Amazig. Um, uh, I'll explain a little bit of what I know. Again, I'll jump to you. And I will also, again, shout out um, one of our amazing partners, which is called Amazing Amazig, um, for, for really focusing on this specific aspect. There is future really great Amazig content to come on our website, so please get excited for that. Um, but Amazig is a much better catch-all term for the um, ethnic nomadic communities of Northern Africa. Uh, you may have heard of the term Berber. Uh, that term is is quite offensive for quite a lot of reasons. Um, probably the easiest one, or the, not the easiest, but the most sim- simple reason, um, is that it's so correct, directly connected to the word barbarian, which viewing nomadic groups as a barbarian in of itself is, is quite uh, othering for many reasons as you can imagine. But also the term Berber is, is maybe the enunciation of, of a different language, and it sounds like that word or a stutter or many, many, many other region- reasons why. Uh, Berber is just not the most appropriate term, whereas Amazig is much more accurate to the linguistic diversity, engagement aspects of those uh, communities. Uh, you know, most of the Northern African countries have a Amazig community today, or communities plural, um, most specifically in Morocco and Algeria, but really all over the Northern African uh, countries. That is the uh, dominant. I'm not going to say ethnic group because there's many groups within the Amazigh, but a more dominant and an accurate label, I guess, for nomadic North African um, peoples. Is there is there more that you uncovered in your research with with Talitha, Abby? No, I think I think you really covered it. Um, I mean, just to to build a bridge with Swana, the Amazigan, I believe I'm saying that correctly group of people would be included under that umbrella as a group trying to propel their liberation. Um, But this, I found that this term was very important for my own personal learning, because if you travel to Morocco, as I have, the Berber culture is very much thrown in the face of tourists. Uh, 
whether you actually are, you know, doing a little trip in the Sahara or whether you're going to a marketplace, you, that is, you know, whether or not you even knew about them before you came to Morocco, that is what is introduced to you. Um, I'm sure it's possible that I encountered uh, some sort of relic of the Amazigh movement when I was there, but I don't remember it because I just remember the Berber language being, um, you know, put in my face so much. And, and so this was one particular word that I had never heard of, um, a movement that I was not familiar with at all. Um, and thanks to the amazing, like you said, work of our partner, I've, I've come to understand it better. Um, and this is a good example, maybe shifting slightly from Swana of a group taking ownership of a specific term uh, versus some more political, you could say, than geographical in this sense. Uh, and just really interesting, like you like you spoke to the history of the origins of the word are so problematic. Um, and uh, just this is, a, like I said, a great opportunity if you're interested in the region uh, just using the correct word is such a huge step forward in trying to be more sensitive or being more of an advocate um, for various issues that would come up for the group. Definitely. I, I spent quite a lot of time in my studies in Morocco. Um, except for my host families were Amazigh. Uh, my host brothers like had the flag and, and the uh, they, they went to Amazigh cultural fairs and, and things quite often. So I was, I was quite familiar with this term before even connecting it all to Al-Fuzaic. And so I really appreciated, you know, A, the phenomenal work of Amazing Amazigh and, and in showcasing, you know, the beauty and, and diversity of the Amazigh, Amazigh, Amazighan, I'm, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong and I apologize, but of those communities. I mean, this really, you know, uh, moves nicely to the third term, um, Afro-Arab. This is the one I was the least familiar with of your three. So I'll let you explain it a bit more because I don't want to get it super wrong. But it, from, from hearing the... Uh, ethnic components of Swana and the ethnic group of the Amazigh, Afro-Arab is, is right fit in there. Um, so I'll, I'll let you define this one and then we'll wrap up this interview. But I just, again, really appreciate hearing the importance of language labeling uh, in anything you do, but especially advocacy efforts. So again, thank you, Abby, for taking this on and I'll, I'll let you uh, define the third term you wrote. Definitely. So I mean, at its most basic, it is supposed to capture the intersection of someone who identifies as both Black and Arab. So this term is not limited at all geographically. Uh, but from what I understand, the term has really become popularized recently as part of efforts specifically in the Minaswana region to address racism uh, in those countries specifically, uh, particularly quite racist terms used for darker skinned individuals, uh, abid, which means slave. Um, this is, there's, <laughs> there's so many layers to unpack here. I first encountered, um, the term, uh, in Palestine, uh, both, uh, there's both, uh, Black Israelis and Black Palestinians uh, who have taken ownership or contested this term. Uh, it's reflected in the politics of something like their soccer, uh, which I won't go into right now. It's reflected in a lot of social settings. Um, but what I want to uh, point out most specifically about this term as a way to wrap up, uh, like I said at the beginning, this language resource guide is not intended to be 
static. It's supposed to be indicative of the fact that these are evolving phrases. And this uh, individual at uh, a magazine called Afropop, which I really tried to uh, use when creating these definitions, spoke really beautifully to this. I think I won't read the whole quote, but she says um, that examining Afro-Arabness is often broad and inaccurate, but it's reconciliatory for the individuals who can take ownership of the term because it can encompass the multiplicity of people's experiences. She writes that it's a very emotionally burdening task. Uh, it spans over Black people's anti-Blackness, the brownness of the face of Islam, and the Western myth of quantifiable and limited identities. But speaking to this constant learning and unlearning process uh, for you know people that identify as Afro or Arab, and as as myself, a white Westerner, just this creation of a conversation is so crucial. And so I very much tried to take the backseat with all of these terms, but I think particularly with this one, um, because they, you know, like this individual said so well, it's, it's constantly evolving, it's emotionally burdening. Uh, and just the opportunity to discuss those intersection of identities and why those are um, problematized so often is really important. Wow, yeah, so much to ch chat about there. We're we're definitely uh, don't have the time right now to focus on it, but we'll definitely chat more in the future because there's such uh, rich aspects of that Afro pop specific uh, quote that you used, um, really highlighting everything that we said in a really be beautiful sentence that may take a lot of people to to analyze or understand. It's it could potentially be quite quite difficult for those who are newer to understanding how to impact update and whatnot with their language first and foremost abby you're a rock star and i say this to you often um because you absolutely are not only are you doing this wonderful advocacy work you're also our development coordinator and making alphusaic even more strong and even more visible to showcase more global communities about the beauties of the swana region but also i guess your advocacy work at the same time so a two for one but thank you so much abby for being here helping to educate myself and our, and our audience on the importance of language and, and how to be a phenomenal advocate. And I just am so appreciative of your future, past, present, all of the above contributions to making Alphuzik even more uh, impressive and vis visible and, and strong. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this wraps up our episode. Abby, if there's any final things you want to say, uh, this would be excellent, but thank you so much for listening all. And what a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. And, you know, the only other thing I would add is, of course, none of this work is possible without the voices and experiences of these individuals who are leading these act act advocacy and resistance movements in the Minaswana region, uh, whether on the ground or, or in diasporas. And so I, you know, I would never accept a label as an expert voice in these matters at all. And it's only through this amazing collaboration with our partners and with uh, these voices on the ground that that this education is made possible. So I really applaud that work. But I also really appreciate uh, this platform for sharing that. So thank you. Well, a win-win all around. Thank you all for listening to this phenomenal Helen with Helen podcast, learning all about advocacy, language, and everything in between. Thank you again, Abby, for being here and sharing and looking forward to the next one. Bye, everyone. Mm -hmm.